Promise No Promises, Feminism in the Caribbean. Episode 2, Writing in Hiatuses. The podcast Promise No Promises opens a new chapter called Feminism in the Caribbean. The series of four new episodes arises from personal conversations between curator and writer Sonia Fernandez-Pan and art practitioners from the Caribbean region. The collaboration is part of the public program of the past exhibition One Month After Being Known in That Island at the Kulturstiftung Basel H.Geiger with the Caribbean Art Initiative curated by Gina Jiménez-Suriel and Pablo Guardiola. The changeful history of the colonization of the Caribbean has left deep scars that are still present today. This is best known by artists and cultural practitioners who work in their own way on an identity of its own for the Antilles. The term Caribbean here is used primarily in a geographical sense to help overcoming local antagonisms between different political systems, languages and cultures while allowing artists of all origins to exchange ideas and thus work together on a Caribbean identity. This series of podcasts aims to engage with a plurality of voices from different backgrounds to think with them on the diversity implicit in the notion of identity. Querida Marta, these words appear at the beginning of our podcast, and yet they are the last words to be part of our open public conversation. While writing this, in front of me I have several documents open with the notes I've been taking from the readings of our texts during the time that we have been sharing emails, audio notes and some images. Although we haven't talked about your novel, La Muerta Feliz de William Carlos Williams, from 2015, I know that in it you construct the poet's mother out of the voids that exist of this woman as a character in the writings dedicated to her by William Carlos Williams. This reminds me of a quote of yours I noted down with many exclamation marks in which you talked about writing in hiatuses. And I can't help but think of the hiatuses in this very podcast. The strangeness of suspending the gift of receiving your voice in fragments as archives and listening how you extraordinarily expand the worlds that my questions and comments draft. As you mentioned, the quality of your recorder makes your voice sound like recorded by a much earlier technology than the one we actually are using now. You gave the example of a gramophone, and this object makes me think of many other objects that with time became locked up in museums, plundered, forced to emigrate from their places of origin, to be contemplated in tactless showcases. In your text, The Pocket of a Migrant, published in the catalogue of the exhibition One Month After Being Known in That Island, you designate precisely how many museums were created by the sugar dynasties and how the capital of colonialism has not stopped moving since the beginning of this never-ending history, which we both also perceive in the present space travels to Mars. The scientific gaze you mention remains a fundamental part of the colonial project. Knowledge as power and tactical weapon makes me think of how power also proudly displays its ignorance. This time, instead of material objects from the Red Planet, the colonizers are sending digital files that return to the bottom of the sea, circulating through the fiber optic cables, the same through which our conversation travels. 
Today, the pockets of many migrants also hold phones with internet connections. However, you refer to the poem by Roger Robinson, another poet who also thinks of his mother and the object she gave him when he was a child. It is an object with magical properties, providing inspiration and support to those who carry it in their pockets, even in the most hostile places. The magical pockets of the immigrant hides objects invisible to people's eyes. But, as you said by referring to Glison's term of opacity, being invisible is not always a liability. There is a creative force in things that cannot be translated or understood completely. There's a resistance in cultures that create new meanings in parallel worlds, as within the literature of the Caribbean islands. It might be seen as an advantage, not being fully understood, but spending a lifetime trying to understand one's own. You know these ideas better than I do, for they are yours, not mine. In one of the essays in Somos Islas, Ensayos and Camino from 2015, you define yourself as a Puerto Rican writer and how the ambivalence of this statement is an invitation to an extended analysis. Spain sold the island of Puerto Rico to the United States in 1898 for 20 million dollars and the continual colonial status is one of the many realities of this island that is an archipelago. You speak of the experience of being an island, of being born a Islada, and it gives me a certain pleasure that the English language isn't able to fully account for your rich play of meanings. You also talk about how the imperial experience consolidates itself by erasing common links and interests between peoples. Sugar appears again, this time as a link between novels and parallel worlds. And I think of the material links between things as opposed to the privileging of themes and conceptual umbrellas. I think of the colonial history inscribed in every piece of chocolate, in every morning coffee, in the cotton of the fabrics we wear, in the abundant and generous connections you establish between different authors through your writing, you evoke Edward Said to highlight the importance of drawing constellations between points that seem distant in time and space. I feel that your writing creates archipelagos and shared tidal movements in a world where so many authors prefer to be single islands. Yours is a writing that makes me think of something Greg Dworak said to me in another conversation, how islands are not floating isolated objects, but the visible part of connected territories in the unfathomable depths of the sea. In your being an island, Glissant reappears, this time to refer to how diversity must be practiced as participation in a new relation and not from the assimilation of subjects within hegemonic narratives. The word diversity, used so often here, makes me think of the relationship of power inscribed between host and guest in the unspoken hierarchies of hospitality. I have not read your first novel, Angelica Furiosa, from 1994, nor have I read La Muerte Feliz de William Carlos Williams and many others that I still want to read. I like that Angelica is furious and that she knows and uses the wisdom of witchcraft and sorcery. I personally feel the rage or fury of many women as ancestral curses that need worldly collective spells in the present and in the future. There are paper copies of many of your books in the collection of the Ibero-American Library in Berlin. I can't read fiction on the computer because I like to read fiction lying in bed and I avoid sleeping with the computer nearby. 
Even if I believe that books are objects created for their diaspora, and though I feel sorry to have books on shelves that could be read by other people, there's something perverse about these European libraries with their encyclopedical seal. They remind me of the botanical gardens and museums you talk about in our podcast. The fact that Germany has the largest library in Europe, specializing in Latin America, the Caribbean, Spain and Portugal, will allow me to read you on paper. But I also wonder how and why Berlin has this library and what kind of relationship this cultural diversity produces and what kind of violence it conceals. As usually, my letters take longer than I intend, but less than my hands on the keyboard would wish. I say goodbye here with un abrazo and wishing you lots of radiant light and gentle breezes in your Puerto Rico. Caribbean literature may be described as a complex network of written and oral expressions in a wide spectrum of languages, Spanish, French, English, and diverse Creole languages. Migration between the islands and their faraway imperial seats of power, as well as to nearby islands and mainlands of Central, South, and North America increased during the wars of independence from Spain and France. Those migrants, whether free or enslaved, were embodied languages, organs of a richly diverse cultural archive that is never fully closed, known or understood. However, and for that reason, what languages signifies, conveys or hides, is our most lasting legacy as a species. The mythologies about the meaning of language is full of contrast. Language has been perceived as a prison house, as a loss of innocence, or as a source of power, as a blessing or a curse. Language is a weapon in present cultural wars. When a body migrates, it comes into contact with other voices. It is either forced to forget and to be assimilated into the official language and moors of the receiving country, or to survive in its own isolated ghettos, or in a parallel world, as did some of my older relatives who migrated to New York City in the 1940s and 50s. The topics of migration and assimilation have been present in Puerto Rican literature since the invasion of 1898, and very vividly in the New Rican poets and novelists and storytellers who wrote from the 1960s on. The new urban experience at odds with the desire to preserve vital nuclei of a sensorial and affective sensibility produced a new subject, a close relative of Roger Robinson's migrant with a magic pocket. 
Your Rican poet Pedro Pietri describes the making of a subjectivity which he named the out-of-focus Puerto Rican, el puertorriqueño desenfocado, oborroso, who, and I'm quoting Pedro Pietri, managed to sneak the ocean into the third-hand maleta which passed through customs undetected, making it possible for us to be in dos casas al mismo tiempo. The centuries-old experience of migration throughout the Caribbean, archipelago, and beyond has long played a role and left its mark on Caribbean literature, in eminent writers, in established classics, and in more recent voices. We are a region of migrants. The question about fiction writing and the law is a question about boundaries. In their origins, legal writings or codes were based on power displays imposed through brutal force and violence and eventually normalized by substituting the constant use of force by generally accepted common sense. An example of cynical use of the binding power of the law are the papal bulas or bulls. They were documents granting by will of the Pope to the Spanish monarch the right to discover and exploit and colonize the Antilles, a very cynical and even deranged move that becomes common sense and turned into an unquestioned law. I guess literature in the modern sense, the best literature, is an effort to explore and question the validity and the effects of power relations as imposed by its own instrument, language. The situation of literature, either written or transmitted by way of the spoken word, is thus problematic. The instrument it uses, language, has been inscribed by official and institutional instruments of instruction and regulations. This is perhaps more evident in the situation of writers from colonized regions who struggle between their vernacular, everyday communications and codified standard forms. very complex and beautiful questions. Indeed, novels are like parallel universes. When writing a novel, the writer lives inside a paradox. She lives in an object that is a work in progress, unfinished, of her own making. At the end of the process, if that work is published in book form, a material, tangible object that existed only in her imagination occupies a physical space.
Angelica Furiosa, my first novel, was the outcome of a desire for freedom, the material evidence of that desiring imagination. She had to be a powerful character to resist and vanquish not only her misfortunes, but also my own fears of writing. The first book is frequently haunted by a writer's obsessions. There are, of course, the circumstances of my native country, occupied by a seemingly invincible imperial power, not only the physical geography of the islands, because Puerto Rico is more than an island, it is an archipelago of small islands, that not only the physical territory is occupied and its access is controlled, but that the minds and the thoughts and the creativity and the imaginations of its people are also controlled in a centuries-old enforcement of total lockdown. Perhaps for that reason, the writer in me conjured a character like Angelica. Angelica is a sorceress, a witch, and her power is older than the violent power of empire. Her powers are grounded in the resistance and endurance of a people. They are related to the oldest traditions of human communities everywhere. Nature worship, the healing and destructive powers of non-human species. Nature worship and the powers of women relate closely to the healing properties of plants. They also relate to the deadly properties of plants. Angelica, the character, was conceived by combining ingredients from many sources. Foremost, this is the novel of my mother, Ana Maria Alcina Diaz. Her stories of growing up in a rural community afflicted by poverty left an indelible mark on me. Through her, I met an older woman, Andreita Cartagena Colón. Andreita was a source for botanic formulas and rituals used by old-time midwives to assist women in labor. She also was a santiguadora, that is, a woman who has the power to heal with the touch of her hands and incantations. Angelica is essentially a nurturing agent who also has the ability to kill. The tales from my mother were complemented by knowledge gathered from books on related subjects. The myths of the great mother and ancient matriarchal societies. La Sorciere, the witch, by Michelet. Iben Andante, by Carlo Ginsberg. The Lord of the Witches, by Margaret Mary. And books by Puerto Rican scholars Esteban Núñez, Oscar Lamour La Valentin, and Teodoro Vidal. This last about the cultures of the people who have lived here in the archipelago for centuries, as well as mythologies and popular traditions from African regions and from Galicia, Las Islas Baleares, y Las Islas Canarias, where many migrants came from. In short, Angelica Furiosa the Witch is an essay in the embodiment of several traditions. The closest one is regional regional ways of thinking and feeling as expressed by the memories and traumas of my mother.
The interest in non-Western forms of knowledge related to women has been shared by writers from the Caribbean and adjacent regions, such as the novelist and anthropologist Erna Broadberg from Jamaica and the American anthropologist and storyteller Sora Neil Hurston. The Caribbean is a region of small island and coastal mainland communities, immensely complex culturally. It is not possible to generalize without missing the mark. However, novels and short stories may be linked to narrative ways of structuring memory or filling the void of forgotten or censored events and linking them. Since an important broad segment of our heritage was not preserved in writing, only isolated anecdotes, incantations, and refrains, like so many loose links of a literature without authors, were passed from generation to generation through the spoken word. Moreover, the secrecy of magic formulas and ceremonies was protected. However, the desire to fill the voids and uncover guarded secrets, or at the least to acknowledge their value, has been a powerful incitement for modern Caribbean writers. Of course, the opposite has also happened. Writers who acknowledge only the Western canonical tradition. In Puerto Rico, they have been called Hispanophilos, Hispanophiles. But when you think about the Trinidadian writer V.S. Naples, for example, the African presence in his childhood environment is muted and inapprehensible. On the other hand, in writers from Dominica, Jean Rhys, the Haitian, Marie Vieux-Chauvert and the St. Lucian Derek Walcott and the Cuban Alejo Carpentier, there are degrees of understanding and acknowledging the powerful African cultural base of our societies. Thanks for the wonderful anecdote about anarchism and spiritualism. A friend of mine says, that no political group has been as disciplined and well-organized as the historical anarchists. In Puerto Rico, they left a strong mark in the working class and feminist movement. There also was a spirit photographer whose name I don't recall at the moment. His photographs of apparitions are now stored in an archive at the U.S. mainland. I feel sorry for them and for every single material object of our tradition collected by alien scholars and laid to rest in oblivion so far away from home. On the concept of objects as archives, we seem to be losing the sense of touching things and how it has been restructured by virtual encounters in the parallel space of social networks. Of course, there was also the practice of forbidding children to touch 
delicate or dangerous subjects. There was a saying in Spanish, se toca con los ojos y se mira con las manos. Both natural and human-made objects have an origin and a trajectory, and that being in time may suggest the sense of a history. The embodiment of that sense in inanimate matter may be read in many ways and through many methods. For example, the readings from the point of view of academic, established, organized, methodical systems of knowledge that are determined by their instruments and principles and also by their material conditions. It seems to be a tragedy of the human species that having the capacity of feeling and remembering sensations, of inventing tools and languages, we're also prone to self-deceit, fear and greed, to lose the sense of what is common, beautiful and sufficient. Viewed like this, the present eulogies of science do not have to be accepted as innocent, totally objective, pure, and universally unshakable truths. That science is a beautiful human language or set of methods and principles, and materially the most powerful set of tools, is unquestionable, if anything is. But how its proofs and intuitions have been sponsored and applied by predatory agents is also no longer questionable. For example, the cultural history of botany. Linnaeus designed not only a universally used taxonomical system, but also promoted worldwide botanical explorations. A taxonomical system universally used based on a dead language and simple criteria enriched the catalog of known plants although it is still hermetic for most of us. It has also played a part in the advances of pharmacocolonialism. Curiously, Sweden does not seem to have a long history of colonial enterprises, unlike Denmark, for example. Linnaeus was committed to the idea of Sweden as a closed, self-sufficient country with an agricultural system capable of producing even tropical foods grown from plants collected by his envoys. We should consider the role of collections and taxonomies in such a context. Plants, and not just sugar, have given their name to wars. The hunger for opium and the thirst for tea led to the opium wars and the submission of the Chinese Empire. Laudanum filled the streets of London and Boston in all social classes. My own country has been called the oldest colony in the world. What a distinction. Perhaps that is not precise, but it has been thoroughly subjected to every kind of conceivable interventions by the scientific gaze. 
An example is the scientific survey of Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands, initiated in the first decades of the 20th century. I share a quote from Nathaniel Britton, the project's founder. This is Britton speaking about the scope of the survey. The completion of the work will make the geology and natural history of Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands insular possessions of the United States the key to the natural knowledge of the West Indies, end of quote. Knowledge then as a means of understanding possessions. On the other hand, the cause of the conquered native is not advanced through victimization or guilt. The colonial is not a passive subject. Even in very unequal power relations, an answer is possible. One of the writer's works has been to capture those constant and diverse responses. An example of a writer's way of recording such responses to the power of the colonizer is a story by Matias Gonzalez Garcia, a Puerto Rican novelist and short story writer, published in the first decade of the American occupation of Puerto Rico. In that story, a peasant plays the role of the trickster, so common in folk tales, and betrays an avid American archaeologist, one of those who traveled the island from coast to coast, collecting objects of the new possession destined to occupy a shelf in the archives and museums of the mainland. The issue of the repatriation of the material patrimony of nations deposited in metropolitan museums is indeed urgent and crucial. It also means that from a situation of very limited material resources, the looted countries have to assume the return of links of our own heritage and the seats of empire should be held accountable and supportive of that endeavor. I do not want to leave the impression of being against museums. There are all kinds and sorts of museums. You can have magnificent learning experiences. That was, at least that's my personal story. Perhaps one of the tasks of the administrators, collectors, and curators of museums, larger museums, should be to be aware of the violent roots of their origin as deposits and exhibitors of material cultures from around the world, and to project that self-awareness in all aspects of their educational and aesthetic functions. The idea of a world literature is closely related to the concept of a free trade market. The term world literature is often attributed to Johann Wolfgang Goethe, who placed a great importance on an universal exchange of ideas between the peoples of the world and considered translators, and I quote, as mediators committed to promote that universal trade of the spirit in the progress of a generalized exchange between literatures, end of quote. It is not therefore surprising that with so-called free trade and free markets of a new liberal economy in recent times, 
there has been a revival of the term world literature. However, it does not correspond to the universal exchange of literary products, but to a branding strategy that is very selective. The world-class writers are few in number and published by the largest publishing houses. Such writers, perhaps more, more than 20 in any list, are usually writers of fiction, and their books are translated into major languages. Of course, the list changed periodically. Franco Moretti, an Italian literary critic dedicated to the statistical analysis of book markets and world literature and comparative literature, has said that literary critics deal with, and I quote him, not even 1% of published works which span hundreds of languages and literatures. Now, this lack of awareness in professional critics impresses me less than the existence of almost unknown languages and literatures. Such bodies of languages and literatures are one of humanity's deposits of knowledge, and they have survived centuries of imperial curiosity. I will get back to these amazing fields but first, more statistics. The 50 largest book publishers are all in the so-called first world richest countries. It is doubtful that they would be interested in investing their advertising, marketing, and royalties in writers that are not fully translatable or understandable or personable enough to function as intellectual commodities. As for the small presses, local and international, they carry the mission of promoting literature from a broader map. One example is the International Alliance of Independent Presses. It has 85 presses from 45 countries among its members and a network of NGOs and helping foundations. The broader publishing scope or bibliodiversity is still small when compared to the universe of existing nations, official countries, 195 countries and 39 dependencies. The academic research libraries of the world are perhaps the largest deposits of authentic world literature. They used to send scouts to buy books in remote countries, and there is still a network of buyers specializing in particular regions. Still, we hardly know the scope of literary production of written and oral literature even in our own countries even in a small country like my Puerto Rico. And although the monetary values exchanged in the book market are not as astronomically high as the exchanges in the art world art market, even considering film or television rights, 
I think that getting to know our own situation, conditions, historical and material environments, and listening to them is important to be able to have a voice that will be heard, to have a respectable presence. Perhaps there is a recipe for making meaningful artifacts that are also successful market commodities. I do not care for such recipes or formulas. My naive enthusiasm for the illuminations that literature and art can provoke may not be fashionable, but they are still human. As for writers from small countries, we would be ill-advised to work in imitation of what is successful elsewhere, or seeking the benevolent gaze of that between quotes, international abstract gaze, which, as you say, is, is in its limited scope of vision, and I quote, a social class that does not exist as such, but which functions as a promise of a place to reach in our careers. I used to think that a revolutionary and strong response to the disasters of capitalism in our lifetime, a particular exercise in immobility, would be to remain in place. Don't buy anything, don't pay, don't recycle money into the system. Don't buy stocks, don't buy cars, houses, clothes in huge megastores. A variation, in other words, of Bartleby's response, I would prefer not to not to buy this or invest in that. This sort of negative ethics was forcefully put to test during the recent lockdowns. The result was devastating for small businesses, but the more powerful sectors grew even richer. Big pharma, internet sales giants, and social networks. Along similar lines, the March 8th mobilizations were initially a representation of the rights of working women laboring in sweatshops. It has evolved into an umbrella for related political struggles. In other cases, it has been turned into an official holiday, distant in its diminished oppositional force from its radical origins. In Puerto Rico, the struggle for women's rights has a long and complex history, from the ideological struggle of the anarchist movement and the wider demands of the right to vote to the issue of reproductive rights, complicated by the fact that the birth control pill was tested here without the fair consent protocols. This constant struggle is now targeting the need to hold the state accountable for training its police forces as responders to violence against women and the need for educational programs in public schools for the prevention of violence against women and transgender persons. But back to the issue of an effective strategy against the violence of the state and its influencers. Performance artists have been 
very brave and creative in the sphere of public protest. They have felt the consequences of their creativity. Puerto Rican performance artist Nina Dross spent two years in a U.S. federal prison for striking a match inside the empty offices of a bank during a May 1st demonstration some years ago. Such is the penalty imposed on the art of protest in the oldest colony, Puerto Rico. Specific symbolic actions may be read as political art, and their effectiveness or value as art may be measured by the response they elicit from authorities in power. How do they relate to our everyday living conditions? A creative response may be improvised or thought out, like your variations on the recipe of the tortillas, but it already has a long history, even an evolutionary history. An artist, a writer, a thinker is not an oracle, but in a sense, she is the embodiment of a vision, a vision that should remain alien to the stock exchange, to the art market, preferring not to be turned into a commodity. So art and literature would do well in not conforming to formulas, to comfortable deals, to the whole art of the deal, or to repression posing as safety, or from fear to be cancelled, or to be out of fashion, out of influence or backup. I would add, in my case, a saturation, a disgust with conservative dystopic, mercenary, and inevitably catastrophic views of the future of planetary life. Let me quote once again a writer from the Caribbean island of Barbados, the Republic of Barbados, Karen Lord. These are Karen Lord's words. Unmitigated dystopia in fiction may be enjoyed by those who live securely, but this region suffers under crisis of economy and climate and a history shadowed by genocide. I am wary and weary of literature that depicts the other extinction, physical or cultural, of people who still fight to survive. We would have to travel back to the romantic periods of Western literature and the emphasis on subjective sensibility to find a comparable importance of women as writers. Some of them, not surprisingly, used male pseudonyms. In Latin America, in the last quarter of the 20th century, closely related to social and revolutionary movements, there was a successful literatura de testimonio, or testimonial literature, in which a writer assumed the role of interviewing a subject and publishing the testimony as the work of the interviewed subject. Some of those works were very influential, such as Miguel Barnett's Biografía de un Cimarrón, Elena Poniatowska's Hasta no verte, Jesús mío. What you refer to as autofiction or autotheory is a more recent form, and in its influence on women's writing, it seeks to validate a discourse as more authentic than others. 
inasmuch as the narrator relates more directly almost through an organic unbroken umbilical cord to the experience beyond the text. This is only partially true, of course, because as you say, language is a conventional codified means of expression, and it carries its own baggage, its own history. The challenge for self-fiction is to avoid schematic cliches and commonplaces and to be aware of the place her voice occupies in a body of literature and in a socially constructed identity. Such an awareness is challenging, and such a conscious relationship with the body of language is one of the conditions of writing today. But writing, at least in my humble experience, may also be a joyous, exhilarating experience of liberation, and we should not be forced to give that up. On the contrary, the mysterious, wondrous relationship between women writers who explore gender-related situations, writers such as Toni Morrison or Virginia Woolf, the struggle between such writers and language shake conventions more deeply than an obsession with dry, codified political correctness. In that sense, if I understand you well, writing and self-writing, so illuminating in the testimonial books of Christina Sharp and Hazel Casby, because these writers, in their work, the source is the pain of personal experience, writing should always seek a space of loneliness and distance from consensus hardened into cliches. At least that distance does not detract from commitment. It just says that there is always something beyond the immediate watchdog code of canceling, ghosting, gaslighting, and so forth. Perhaps there is yet another issue even more sensitive for women writers. One generation ago, or more than one, <laughs> there was the fear that the opportunities opened in the market of readers for women writers as a consequence of feminist struggles would result into another manipulated ghetto or market niche, women's fiction, women writers versus the rest, that is normal literature. Related to such branding are issues such as self-censorship or even self-betrayal. Still another issue is closer to women's writers from colonial or colonized countries such as my own Puerto Rico. How do you approach how to write our silence monumental moments, spaces, and figures, such as Lolita Lebron. Lolita Lebron headed a small group of nationalist militants in an attack on the U.S. Congress in 1954 to protest and call attention to the absolute powers of Congress over the Puerto Rican people. How do you write a heroic personality like that 
when her cause is very much alive and debated even today in close, critical, poetic, and truthful form. There are as many traps for an emerging voice in the case of women, a very diverse, disenfranchised demographic majority to write about herself, her heritage, humankind, nature, and everything under the scope of imagination. The challenge is there, but to be able to respond is also a privilege. Perhaps the interest in space travel and its presence in commercial media increases when there is a generalized feeling that the Earth is in danger, that our planet is dying. Back in the 19th century, in the 1870s, in the backwater Spanish bastion of Puerto Rico in the Caribbean, an amazing writer, Alejandro Tapia y Rivera, edited a magazine for women. In it, he published an article on the geography of Mars. The article contained information that is still held to be true about the size and the form of the fourth planet, and some that is not considered true anymore. The author of the article praised an instrument called a spectroscope, which was used to observe the atmosphere of Mars, that is, to suggest that the red planet has an atmosphere. Now, that decade of the 1870s was a very politically active and violent time for humanity. The Paris Commune set an alternative, more democratic way of organizing society, but it was exterminated while defending the city of Paris during the Franco-Prussian War. The United States of America were in a period of reconstruction after their civil war, and the interest in astronomy in general, and Mars in particular, was related to the interest in spiritualism and psychic phenomena. Two famous astronomers and public intellectuals, Gustave Flammarion and Giovanni Chiaparelli, were also researchers in the fields of spiritualism and research of psychic phenomena. Perhaps the article published by Tapia in La Azucena was written by one of them. The 20th century was the golden age of science fiction and Martian tales for evident reasons. At the center of these tales, there is a constant threat. The destructive effects of science when manipulated by political and economic power and madness and the inability of our species to control them. Long ago, and not that far away, when I was an adolescent, in the years of the so-called Cold War, the movies 
and television were full with space travel gone wrong, with scientific experiments gone chaotic, zombies, radioactive monsters, invasions from outer space, mostly from Mars. Those were the politically charged issues of the day, and they were mythically adapted as icons of pop culture. Space travel could also be represented by reformulating ancient myths, and sometimes the cinematic images were beautiful and even fanciful. That is the style, the visual and sensorial style of Bradbury's The Martian Chronicles. The first time I read the book, I was fascinated by the radiant atmosphere with its objects that reminded me of the treasures of the Arabian Nights. Singing books, pillars of rain, children playing with golden spiders, soft musical voices, fruits that grew from the crystal walls of the houses. Of course, these are the illusions that hide dangerous, deadly wars. Another book that became a favorite was the first volume of a trilogy written by C.S. Lewis, Out of the Silent Planet. I love the love story between the protagonist and the lovely and loving Martians who team up to combat the violence forces bred in our planet, the silent barbaric planet. The current Martian revival, let's call it that, emerges in the context of the pandemic threats and the catastrophic discourses on climate change. The colonialist bent of what should be a source of wonder is not hidden at all. The world's richest capitalist men have dropped all earthly interests to enter the race to Mars. After all, massive investments have make, made a big step in that direction, as they with research and development of the Internet privatized later in the 1990s. There is much left to do right here on Earth to reverse environmental destruction and put an end to the push factors that displace thousands of migrants and provoke disasters. Curiously, the colonialist vision is present even in the publications of botanical gardens, those institutions that were instruments of empire way back in the 18th century. I quote from a guide published by the Kew Botanical Gardens in London in 2017. They write, Some scientists have suggested that humans should colonize another planet. The one they have in mind is Mars. Once the atmosphere is made thicker through human intervention or terraforming, the soils could potentially be used to sustain agriculture. Plant hunters and botanists would then be tasked with supplying plants and trees from Earth to change the red planet to a green one. End of quote. Frankly, my dears, there is no such phenomenon as an empty space waiting for us to intervene. 
Scientists, all people should know how unpredictable our understanding of life remains, how many deep sources of the unknown are left in our own minds. Besides, there is a lot of greening to be done here in our own home planet. Promise No Promises is a podcast series produced by the Women's Center for Excellence, a think tank tasked to assess, develop and propose new social languages and methods to understand the role of women in the arts, culture, science and technology, as well as in all knowledge areas that are interconnected with the field of culture today. The chapter Feminism in the Caribbean is a special collaboration with the Caribbean Art Initiative as part of the public program of the past exhibition one month after being known in that island, curated by Gina Jiménez-Suriel and Pablo Guardiola, and supported by the Kulturstiftung Basel-H.Geiger. The Caribbean Art Initiative is committed to contemporary art that is related to the Caribbean and supporting the creative and cultural exchange between the Caribbean region and the rest of the world. Recording and editing, Sonia Fernandez-Pan. Final editing and voiceover, Elena Ziza. Music, Stephen McAvoy. Research Team Alice Wilke and Marion Ritzmann. Technical Support Esther Hunziger, Steven Schoch, Konrad Siegel and Chris Handberg. Press and Communication Anna Franke. If you're interested to get more information about further podcasts and events related to this project, please visit dertank.ch. That's dertank.ch. Request information or subscribe to our newsletter at info.kunst.hgk at fhnw.ch. That's info.kunst.hgk at fhnw.ch. Copyright by Institut Kunst, HGK, FHNW and Kulturstiftung Basel H. Geiger, together with the Caribbean Art Initiative Basel 2021.